Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm all right. I'm packing a suitcase, actually. You're always packing a suitcase. I know. Where are you going I'm, now? I'm going to Cambridge. <laughs> I'm going to the Cambridge Literary Festival, Lovely. which is on this coming weekend, if you're listening as it were in real time, where I'm going to be interviewing all sorts of people, including Hugh Bonneville, Fantastic. Paddington's dad, I want to say, though that's a weird thing to say. No, Paddington's dad, the patriarch of Downton Abbey, and also Ian Fletcher in W1A, one of my favourites. I will be on the stage with him, with Nadia Hussein, with Francis Bufford and Joe Browning-Rowe, with Abby Morgan, with Carmela Shamsi, all going on. And I hope to track down the as yet unknown winner of the Bailey Gifford Prize. By the time you, the listeners, hear this, you probably will know because it's imminent, but I will be attempting to find them. They will be appearing at the festival and I am going to try to track them down, have a chat with them that you'll hear next week. So it's a busy weekend. Brilliant. That does sound very busy. I was going to ask you, Alex, if you wanted to know the answer to the question, why should we be glad to be alive? You can say no if you want. We just be like, no, I'm not bothered. I actually would like to know the answer to that question, Lucy. Do you have it? Well, I've got one answer to it, it turns out, in the TLS this week. One of the answers is beauty. Because there's a review of a couple of books about beauty and one of them is saying that this is a reason to be glad to be alive and also talking a lot about YOLO which is I'm sorry for saying it like that you only live once and our reviewer Kieran Setia who teaches philosophy at MIT and has got a book out and you know knows whereof he speaks he says this is great but can I put in a word for the planners he makes a case for sucking Mm. the marrow out of life on a tentative schedule (laughs) isn't that nice Unpack that a little bit for me. <laughs> what he means is, because I think the first book is sort of about pursuit of beauty and you kind of throw yourself at it. 
you see what I mean? Yes. And he's saying, well, you, you can throw yourself at it, but that's not the only way. Yes, somebody like me might say, well, how do you know which shoes to take if you've just to throw yourself <laughs> into beauty? You know, and the spontaneous is all very well, but it does still have to be planned for. Well, yeah, exactly. That's what he says. Sucking the marrow out of life on a tentative schedule. You basically, you put in place things that you might want to do, but you don't get sidetracked from the possibility of just changing plans. You're not too rigid about it, perhaps. Yes, he doesn't exactly say that, but I think... Yes. I think he's saying that there's lots of routes to it. You get there how you get there. And he says, if beauty is not the only answer to the question, it's a good one. And it isn't necessarily the only answer, he says, but it's a good answer. So there you are. You're welcome. And the other amazing thing we have is we have a translation by Margaret Yule Costa of the last ever uh, newspaper column by Javier Marias for El País. His 939th column for them. I had to check that. Because it just seems extraordinary. That slightly puts one's own ideas of productivity to shame, doesn't it? (laughs) It really does. I mean, it's a lovely piece about translation, about translating, you know, works of literature and and how he how he misses doing it. I mean, partly misses doing it because he had to stop because it's very badly paid. And as we all know, translators are, you know, badly paid and not enough acknowledged. Yes. Unsung heroes. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That was his last ever column. So it's in the paper this week. Oh, that is a wonderful thing to read. Thank you Mm. very much for that preview. We have some other wonderful gems, we hope, in this podcast, because coming up on this week's show, our French editor, Russell Williams, will be joining us to talk about Emmanuel Carrère's book, which centres on the long and detailed trial in the wake of the Bataclan attacks in Paris. And we'll also be looking at TLS contributors' recommendations of their books of the year. But first, seven years ago, France endured a night of multiple terrorist attacks centred around the Bataclan Concert Hall in Paris. 131 people died and hundreds were wounded. The terrorists also targeted the Stade de France in the north of the city and cafes and bars where people were eating and drinking on the terrasse on a Friday night. The trial of those involved in the attacks took place last year and the novelist Emmanuel Carrère attended them wrote about them for the magazine Lobs and has now published these columns in a new book. Russell Williams, our French editor, has written about this book for us and is here to talk us through it. Russell, many thanks for joining us. You're actually in Indiana, aren't you? Far away from home. I am a long way from home and the longer I spend here, the further away from home it feels. That sounds rather poignant. I know we've been chatting before, I think you're missing European coffee. I am. I'm fueled by about 20 cups of, of really, really weak American coffee every day. I'm, I'm drinking it like water at the moment. Gosh, that cannot be good for you long term. You're on university business at the Liberal Arts College. And I think you said it, it puts you in mind of a Donna Tartt novel. Well, yes, or a Bret Easton Ellis novel or even White Noise by Don DeLillo, one of these remote colleges in the middle of the Midwest in the middle of nowhere, where there's very little else apart from a big sprawling campus with countryside all around. You can see how somebody like Don DeLillo would be inspired to write white noise after after spending any time in in a very very bizarre place such as this. I'm thinking of Jane Smiley as well. One of her books is set in in that sort of campus, isn't it? But all I will say is, Russell, if anybody says come into the woods, we're having a bit of a ritual, don't go. We need you. We need you. (laughs) I'm desperate for that kind of invitation, frankly, Alex. (laughs) But you're joining us with your French editor's hat on, as it were, because this 
book. Emmanuel Carrère is obviously a very kind of great, very established writer in France. We'll talk about him and, and why he's doing it in a minute. But first of all, to talk about the trial itself. So it's called V13, isn't it? Because the attacks took place on a Friday the 13th. And the trial, the impression I got from your piece is that it, it was a sort of public spectacle, but not a circus. It was kind of well-managed and they, they thought about how the process was going to happen and they tried to be organised and respectful. Does that make sense? I think it does. Obviously, we're dealing with a hugely traumatic event. But this trial, yes, it was the trial of those who were accused of participating and helping the massacre to take place. The participants who actually were responsible for doing the bombing and the shooting themselves are either you know, missing or presumed dead in the attack. I think the actual trial, as you say, Lucy, was particularly well managed. The French legal system were very careful of it not becoming a spectacle in the truest sense of the word. It was very much a grinding legal bureaucratic performance that didn't glamorize or didn't sensationalize the very, very awful, tragic details of what happened on that night in February. But it was also a trial that was stage managed or constructed in such a way that the focus of it was testimony of the very many people who were victims or families of victims or survivors of um, what happened on that awful night. I mean, trials such as that after you know, exceptionally traumatic and violent events do often seem to function as a sort of social catharsis in a way. They sort of are about hearing those stories and a, almost an act of remembrance. Did the trials feel like that, I wonder? I think it did. I think the most important takeaway from the trial has been the opportunity that the survivors and the families of survivors had to speak and to have their testimony validated, listened to, performed in public. I teach a bit of Greek theatre and catharsis kind of always feels a little bit kind of performative and a little bit extreme. And I think one of the kind of interesting textures of this case was the bureaucratic stage on which these testimonies were performed. It was very polite, but everybody was given the opportunity to speak. The presiding judge was, you know, very respectfully listening to everything that the survivors and their families had to say. I think it's important to remember here that there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of testimonies. This was a trial that ran for months and actually being part of this trial, either reporting it or being part of the legal team or being a interested family member who was listening to this case meant that you were signing up for weeks and weeks and weeks of grisly detail and heartbreaking anecdotes and accounts of the trial. In many ways, it's also an act of a feat of endurance for all of the people who were, who were associated with it too. Mm. And we might think at first glance that Emmanuel Carrère would be an unusual choice of author to write about this in one way, wouldn't we, in, in terms of some of the books he'd read. Can you kind of lay out in some ways why you would have thought, well, hang on, why is he doing it? Well, Emmanuel Carrère is a writer who is not adverse to, to sensation. 
he's best known as a memoirist. And Emmanuel Carrère is somebody that generally puts himself at the centre of whatever he's writing about. You know, he's written accounts of a murder case back in the 90s. Um, he's written about the dissident Russian writer uh, Limonov. He's written about the beginnings of early Christianity. He's written about the American sci-fi writer Philip K. Dick. But actually what you get in all of these novels, you get a real close interrogation of Emmanuel Carrère himself. And you get you know, a real kind of, you know, he's been accused of being extremely narcissistic and, and navel-gazing. And I think with most of his work, if you get a picture of anything, you know, whether it's about the early Christian church or a Russian dissident writer, you actually get a lot of details about Emmanuel Carrère and his own kind of personal trajectory here. And he doesn't shy away from, you know, there's loads of sex in your typical Carrère novel. There's a personal intimacy in his books that is kind of fascinating. But then you think, well, is he really the right guy to be sharing the space of this, but actually, I think he is. His last book, Yoga, which was a great success, wasn't it? And claimed was totally about him, and it was it was about his relationships and a breakdown and all of that. I mean, it was more about him almost than any of the others, wasn't it? So why, if he is present in his books, as we say, sometimes front and center, so why is he the right person then? I think he's a good enough writer and a mature enough writer and a sophisticated enough writer to actually have the taste and the grace to make his case, you know, not about him. I think like many of us who were living in Paris at the time of the November the 15th attacks, you know, he was bowled over by the magnitude of the atrocity. Personally, I was living a mile away from the Bataclan when it happened. I was living at the same time about 300 meters away from one of the cafes that was attacked. And, you know, it was a hugely poignant kind of moment. And I think there's also a kind of working through of the case for Emmanuel Carrère as well, a working through of the atrocity. He's also trying to understand what's going on, but he's doing so in a respectful manner. So he's, he's respectful enough to kind of absent himself from the text. You know, he's written enough journalism in his career, uh, which we forget, you know, he started off as somebody who did a lot of reporting, even court reporting. So he's he's experienced enough to kind of to make this not about him. But I guess with narratives of this kind, I mean, with or in fact, with the events that occurred, there is always that sense of them having a greater resonance, a resonance more widely when there's an attack on a, a city. It came to feel like an attack on much more than just those places and those people and I wonder how he addressed that in the book if he does. The reason I like Emmanuel Carrère is he's not concerned really with the political or social significance of, of this case. He's interested in the human stories and I think one of the things that Carrère does very well in many of his books is focus on small details and actually tease out if there is a kind of social meaning or a political meaning, it comes through in the small details, in the gestures, in what we learn about the last moments of some of the victims of the shooting, of what we learn about how they prepared to get ready for a Friday night out at the Bataclan. It's these kind of little poignant details that I think are revealing. And I think if there's anything in this novel 
in terms of any kind of truth or working through, it's done through pathos. It's done through the sad details. To come back to this idea of the catharsis, if there is a cathartic moment in this book, those kind of small, low-level, insignificant details that remain in your memory after you've lost a loved one, for example. Yes, because a catharsis, probably at least as we use it colloquially, is the wrong word because it implies, as I said, at least colloquially, a kind of reckoning with something, getting it out of the way, getting it out of yourself and then, you know, being able to continue. And of course, that's not the case for people whose lives have been touched by something like this. I think it's worth remembering that Carrère, you know, he was not touched directly by this case he was a bemused concerned observer when it was all was all happening and there is a kind of a small micro genre of French writing that has emerged around the terrorist attacks of 2015 there was the Bataclan and also earlier in the year in January 2015 of course there was the Charlie Hebdo shooting as well and there is a genre of writing where survivors um, I'm thinking of Philippe Lanson who was shot in the Charlie Hebdo attack there's also around the Bataclan um, there's also been a, a number of memoirs that have been written by fathers or families of who've actually lost children, who've actually kind of got this direct relationship to the case, which is a very harrowing style of, um, of writing and a very harrowing read. But I think Kaga has a certain amount of distance here um, and he's able to tease out the moments. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's not the first time he's he's been in that position either, because he wrote a book, didn't he, about the tsunami, because he was present but distant from that. He was staying not very far away, but not actually directly involved, and then wrote a book about that, didn't he? He did that book about the tsunami, D'autres vies que la Other Lives Than My Own, is another kind of remarkably affecting collection of, of kind of portraits of people who have been through moments of, of incredible suffering or, or incredible sadness. It's an incredibly sad book. It's an incredibly pathetically moving book. And Kaler as a writer, you know, he doesn't, you know, it's quite easy to cry <laughs> when you're reading an Emmanuel Carrère memoir. And he knows how to manipulate his readers. In the Vitres book, there's a certain amount of restraint here. And I think part of that comes from the fact that this was, you know, this was serialized as newspaper columns. So he's he's probably being edited more closely um, than he might have been in previous works. But there's also a kind of, you know, there's also this distance, I think, too. A natural restraint. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, because sometimes you're calling it a novel and sometimes you're calling it a book. And it was a series of columns, but it's where is it? What does it say on the front? Does it say it's a novel? No, no, it, this is a collection of um, okay. this is a, a, a récit. This question of genre is is really interesting because you know um, you know Carrère started off as a as a novelist writing pure fiction. He's moved into this nonfiction, but he still uses the tools of the novelist. You know he he doesn't play with the boundaries of fact and fiction as he does to great effect in something like yoga. But he does play you know with with narrative perspective and and voices and, and he creates memorable characters. But this is this is very squarely nonfiction. There's none of the blurring of the of the genres that you might you might normally find with him. Not here. Like there's a great moment in yoga when he creates a whole a whole dramatic scene, and then at the end he kind of says, "Well, actually, that didn't happen," um, and and the reader kind of feels hoodwinked. There's none of that kind of um, cloak and literary cloak and daggers in um, in this récit, and um, I think it would have been inappropriate for him to have kind of played played it fast and loose with with literature in quite that way here. How are his columns and how has this book 
been received in France? Well, it's been received very well. You know, it's been, you know, Carrera over the last 10 years has achieved a, you know, if not quite the status of a loved public intellectual, a kind of position of, of respect within the, the literary community and the reading community. He hasn't won any, any literary prizes. This is obviously the season of literary prizes and he hasn't been crowned in that way. But, you know, this is, this is a book that, that, that has sold. This is a book that has been critically regarded. It would just seem a little bit, to give it an award might seem a little bit kind of tacky. It seems to offer a little bit, it, it, it seems more of, a, more of an important document than, than something that, that, that should be celebrated or crowned with a, you know, with a yes. prize. And, as, and, and also, as you said, that also might make it about him again. Do you well, know yes, what I mean? Absolutely. If they give him a yeah, prize for it, that. Yeah, and it sounds as though uh, he and everyone else involved is trying quite hard not to do that. Um, and as you say, it's unfortunately, there is a kind of literary micro subgenre that, that now exists that can be identified. Russell, many thanks for um, guiding us through that very difficult book. And um, good luck in Indiana. Yes, what will the day hold in store? I'm not quite sure yet. Don't drink too much coffee. Not too much coffee. I'm what I know it's weak and watery, but I am worried about you getting the jitters. I may be projecting because I'm not good at my limiting my own coffee intake. But I implore you not to do the same thing. I'm going to try and track down a tenderloin sandwich at some point. Splendid. Thank you very much, Russell. Still to come on the show, from Portuguese maritime history to insects to Bob Dylan, we chat through what our TLS contributors have been reading this year. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. I'm Alex Clark. Now it is that time of the year again. It might be that you open any newspaper and feel that all you are seeing is book recommendations. The books of the year of the great and the good of the literary world. Well, the TLS is no exception, but of course we would say that ours is the very best, the most surprising, the most capacious and the most diverse. And here to talk us through it is the TLS's fiction editor, Toby Lishtig. Hello, Toby. Hello. What do you think of this time? Do you look forward to this feature? Well, as I don't have to put it together myself, and I can just <laughs> approach it as a reader, yes, I do. I love it. I, can, I really look forward to it. It is your wonderful colleague, 
David Horsepool, who does the, the leg work, doesn't he? He does do all the work, yeah. yeah. And I always note that he puts a very strong message telling people not to overwrite because they will be cut. Yes, I think that there are some people who have been known to, you know, submit their 1500 word essay and I think I, I don't know you, you tell me Alex because you're a contributor what is the word limit about 150 words something like that I think it is something like that yes and also as uh, uh, recommending the book written by your wife husband brother sister mother father son daughter any of that is generally frowned upon though that some of those do get in don't they under the when you put the disclaimer in it's frowned upon I know she's my wife and yet and yes yes it's still a brilliant book (laughs) I know that we've talked about this before isn't it this business of log rolling is very difficult to root out isn't it and yet it is something one doesn't want to encourage no it devalues the business of criticism, doesn't it? You know, you're supposed to be giving objective opinions and you can't really do that when you're very, very close to someone. I mean, it can become difficult when you're commissioning and in certain subject areas, people know each other. But yeah, we, we avoid log rolling at all costs. But I do love this feature for many reasons. I think lots of lots of our readers love it for many reasons. And one is the vast breadth of reading that one encounters, uh, you know, amongst these sort of 50 or 60 contributors across a vast array of fields. And also, I think some of the entries can just be beautiful little essays in their own right. Mm, there, mm. there are great examples of just how one can, you know, in this very, very particular form, be witty or irreverent or incisive. So, yeah, I love it. And it's a big range of voices as well as choices, I would say. Yes, I noted on the subject of witness, Sam Leith, who recommended Andrea Wolfe's Magnificent Rebels, uh, which about German romantics, ended his little thing with saying, you'll love this book. It's like a TLS party. Well, I noticed that bit as well. But can I read you the bit before that? Mm. <laughs> it's a bit alarming. A bit of intellectual history, also a cauldron of fantastic gossip. Feuds, hero worshipped, doomed love, rampant adultery and stinky book reviews. It's all here. It'll remind you of a TLS party. <laughs> you see, I just thought he meant canapes wow. and a lot of slightly vinegary white wine. Yeah, is no, what he I didn't. thought he meant, but he meant adultery. I don't remember all that for the last party, but clearly I left too early before the, all that started. Well, we've got to that age, haven't we, Lucy? We make our excuses quite early and get home for CSI. That's how it goes. But Maybe we do. I love Joyce Carol Oates's because every year she just really does give you a list. I'm sure that's not all the books she's read because I'm sure she's read millions. No, definitely not. She's probably written double the amount of books that she's listed. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, she almost certainly has. It gives you a real insight into personality. So, you know, Sam Leaf is kind of bit playful. Joyce Carol Oates just gives you this wonderful dump of, you know, probably about one percent of her reading in this very sort of straight down the line. Really interesting, really diverse. You've got Michael Hoffman who doesn't sort of miss the opportunity to be slightly snarky, but also shoot <laughs> beautiful pieces of criticism. So he recommends Annie Erno's oeuvre and her entire oeuvre, particularly the years. And often it's been the year of Annie Erno with her Nobel win. But he, he says of her books, they give us Coca-Cola bottle and ask us to infer our society in history and species from it, which is a brilliant way of, of explaining what Erno does. It's a wonderful piece of criticism in a sort of throwaway line. Um, and then he says he recommends Threshold, a poetry section by Iman Mersel, which he says, you know, in parentheses, the first new poems I've liked for years. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I hate poetry, but read this one. Thereby, all these poets hoping that they might have got the Hoffman nod, just sitting there thinking, oh, he, not only did he not like my poetry, he hasn't liked any for years. 
but you know how good must Mersal now feel to know yeah. that <laughs> <laughs> now I'm trying to remember now who it was who recommended Sheila Hetty's Pure Colour because I thought oh thank goodness because not everybody liked that book but I really really liked it Toby I can't remember where you stood on it I haven't read it so can't really opine <laughs> I like Sheila Hetty um, I, I really liked How Should a Person Be although I wonder now if I revisited it 10 years on what I would feel but um yeah I'm frantically leafing through as you speak trying to find out who it was at record it was Claire, it. Oh, Claire Carlyle, Carlyle in yeah. fact yeah. and I think one of the things that people found tricky about this book is there are kind of passages where you know the narrator curls up and becomes part of a leaf I mean that, but that sounds completely of, fascinating the level of narrative caprice we're talking about but it's about about grief at parental loss and I just found it one of the just the best explanations I suppose of that that I've that I've ever read so I thought it was marvelous and I'm, I'm glad and now you see I treat these essays as a sort of vindication of my own tastes <laughs> as well as a sort of shopping expedition for things to read well you go yes good I was right go, it yes is good. I was absolutely right Claire <laughs> Carlyle thinks so and so do I yeah yeah can I read Ian Sansom it's absolutely brilliant one of the very nice things about this is that it is all positive because people are saying what they liked and what they found interesting and fascinating and you know all of that so the celebrities kind of knifing each other in the ribs very much and that's not what Ian Sansom is doing but it's a slightly different tone it opens with a quote from Philip Larkin, who, as we know, was a right laugh, generally. He says, what an awful time of year this is. Just as one is feeling that if one can just hold on, it won't get any worse, then all this Christmas idiocy bursts upon one like a slavering Niagara of nonsense and completely wrecks one's entire frame. And then Ian Sansom says, nothing changes. <laughs> <laughs> and he recommends a book called Silent Earth, Averting the Insect Apocalypse, which actually I do want to read, but he does say, this is not uplift. You know, it's an important book, but it's not uplift. The book that he does recommend for uplift is called Everybody Has a Plan Until They Get Punched in the Face, which is yes. a brilliant, brilliant yes. title. It's the about boxer, boxing. By Tony Belly, who is a boxer, yeah. was a boxer. Yeah. And it's a kind of really fascinating on boxing and, you know, boxing and the individual. And Sanson says very gnomically and brilliantly, he says, it's a book about boxing, but, you know, it applies. <laughs> brilliant yeah <laughs> yes you're right yes he also points out and this is all within 150 words listeners i am well aware says ian Sampson, that the grass withereth and the flower fadeth which is is that the kind of thing we want to be reading to cheer ourselves up as we have to go into the kind of fray of of christmas i don't think that's what he's saying i don't think the book about the insect apocalypse is going to cheer you up the book about getting punched in the face is apparently but the other one is important anyway Quite a bit of Dylan, isn't there, in these recommendations? Quite a lot of people are liking Bob Dylan's The Philosophy of Modern Song, Wesley Stace, and uh, Elaine Showalter is also recommending a book about Dylan by Graham Marcus. I mean, there have been an awful lot of music biographies this year, haven't there? I mean, thinking about Bono, for example, but all sorts of people getting clearly to that time of their career and their life, I suppose, where they are looking back. Do you have any favourites? I haven't read any of those books. Paul Muldoon recommended Bono's book, which I think is only just out. There are a lot of them around. I feel sometimes like maybe it's good if musicians play music. Is that grumpy of me? 
little <laughs> grumpy. I mean, actually, and Wesley Stace is, is actually someone who, you know, does the crossover very well, doesn't he? He plays music and he writes very nicely. And I think I think musicians are allowed to write as well. I mean, Dylan does write. He's he's a Nobel Prize yes, exactly. winner. <laughs> I know. I know. I think I perhaps like Dylan more than Lucy does, perhaps. <laughs> I mean, we've it's talked... not that. I just, yeah, I just prefer it. I, I also find it very difficult reading about Dylan because people do go on, don't they, a bit? I think I might be one of the goers on us. Oh, really? <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> I'm going quiet. <laughs> No, don't go quiet. That's I'm just going that's quiet here. That's just me being grumpy. <laughs> Let's get Not on to Roger all. Federer. I'm getting on to the sunnier uplands of Roger Federer. Also recommended. In fact, again, I think Joyce Carol Oates just recommended everything, hasn't she? Really, even within her 150 words. But Elaine Showalter recommends uh, Jeff Dyer's book about Federer: The Last Days, and. It's, it's sort of wider meditation on the idea of things coming to an end. It's late style, late style. Late style, I see. Interested in. And because it's Jeff Dar, it's also about everything. So he <laughs> moves from one topic to the other in his wonderful Jeff Darish voice. I read this earlier this year and I, I loved it, actually. I thought it was brilliant. So, yeah, good recommendation. It's not Sunlit Uplands. Well... It's Managing Graceful Decline. Yeah. But, well, you know, the sun setting downlands, perhaps, lowlands. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> And actually, the one of the things I took from it really strongly, which is possibly a ridiculous thing to take from it, is that we must all do lots of Pilates. Do you remember there's one bit in it? Because he talks about the injuries he's had from playing tennis. He goes his back and his knees and his ankles and his arms and all of that. And he just says there are people who don't get these injuries and they've all done loads of Pilates. So that for me was he just, Jeff Dyer saying, do loads of Pilates and you'll be all right. He is a very healthy individual, though. I think he does really look after himself, doesn't he? Well, he obviously plays a lot of tennis, which counts. I'm talking about Jeff Dyer, not Roger Federer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, he does too. Roger Federer looks after himself. <laughs> Is really this the place to tell you my Jeff Dyer poached egg story? Yes. I think so, yes. Well, I met him, our paths have crossed a little bit this year because he's been at festivals talking about this book. And they crossed in West Cork where there was a very jolly breakfast meeting of people who'd been at the festival. And I came down very slightly after other people and they'd all had an egg. And Jeff Dyer was insistent that it was very important to specify exactly the time that one's egg should be poached. And I being a sort of slight kind of, I don't know, people pleaser and anxious in this rather busy restaurant did not do that. And I got a slightly hard poached egg. And Jeff Tyre now has seen me for several times and said, how are the poached eggs going? Have you learnt your lesson, basically? <laughs> so he is very exacting and he is the man to sit with at breakfast if you want to specify exactly how you would like the consistency of your egg yolk. Okay, well, that's very good to know. Well, we had Jeff Dyer on the podcast a while ago. Maybe it was last year. Maybe it was the year before. I'm doing that thing of saying, was it 10 years ago? I can't remember. Because he was talking about Lonesome Dove, which he wrote about in the TLS. And then I read because he wrote the piece. And then we just, if you've read Lonesome Dove, especially if you've just read it, you just want to talk about it a lot in depth with someone else who's read it. And that's what we did. There's a particularly particularly horrible bit which if you don't like snakes you should almost read you know between your fingers but it's totally brilliant I'm so grateful to him 
for saying, you know, I read this huge Western and found it absolutely wonderful. And then I did the same thing. So there's a bit of positivity for you. It's a podcast worth looking up for listeners who haven't listened to it. And the piece itself, which I, I believe it's one of the longest pieces we've published in the last five years, I think it's about seven or 8,000 words. Yeah, and I could have had it double the length. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For those who subscribe, you can find it in the archive. You, you look up loans stuff. It's a really, really brilliant piece. And you don't have to be remotely interested in Westerns or anything like that to read the book. It's not, look, I'm going to do it. I'm coming in as the ignoramus to say what is Lonesome Dove, who is it by? It's by Larry McMurtry. Surely not every listener will know, like me. And I know I should, I know I should know I'm sorry. by Larry McMurtry. I got no. a bit mixed up there and couldn't think who it was by. Toby, you're the fiction editor here. How bad is it if you mix up Larry McMurtry and Cormac McCarthy? I think it's fine. <laughs> Depends if they're there or not. <laughs> they are different. They are very At different. a TLS party, as described by Sam Leith, dreadful. But just in front of our listeners and you two, it's okay. All right, fine. They both, as well as, you know, having Mook in their surname and, you know, sounding the ladies, they, they both write Westerns, don't they? Different sorts of styles of Westerns. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, there are crossovers. But anyway, I think we shouldn't mix them up if we can. No, they are, they are very different people. <laughs> what would you take from the books of the year? Do you know what I mean? Which ones have you read about and thought, oh, I must read that? It depends whether they're playing Alex's game of saying, oh, yes, I've read that and I completely agree, or, oh, I've been meaning to read that. Because the main book that I have been meaning to read, not so much that I've been meaning and failing, I've just been saving it, is the uh, the Joseph Roth biography, which came out quite recently, a few weeks ago. It's recommended by William Boyd here, isn't it? Exactly, recommended by William Boyd. We, we ran a really brilliant piece on it by George Proshnick. And it's called Endless Flight to the Life of Joseph Roth. It's by Kieran Kim. And as Boyd points out, although amazingly the the whole of Roth's corpus has been translated into English now most of it this century much of it by the wonderful Michael Hoffman aforementioned Michael Hoffman there hasn't really been a major biography in English ever and now that is not the case anymore because this wonderful book's come out and it just sounds so brilliant and his life is so interesting and sad and I just am very keen to read it what does he say William Boyd said it supplies all the information on Roth's tormented, rootless, inebriated life. Yes. He did and achieved an awful lot. He died in his early 40s. He did drink an awful lot. He, lo he looked a lot older than he was, even, you know, when he was in his early 30s. He looked about 50. It was partly the drink, I think. And, you know, he lived in this incredibly tumultuous period in you know, the interwar years in Germany and across Central Europe and reported on first world war and its aftermath and and germany in the 20s and yeah he died tragically young and it sounds really really fascinating this book so that's my little christmas treat mm. what about you alex is your christmas treat not having to read a book for a week no let's not say that on a books podcast absolutely not <laughs> but i am going to start with the admission of something that i haven't read actually a writer that i haven't read and paul griffiths recommends uh, john foss and John Foss is not a writer I've read. Have either of you two? I have, because Toby commissioned me. Didn't you, Toby? Yes. I, yeah. I, I read three of them, at least three, actually. And I've seen one of his plays. It's very moving. It's very moving. I imagine this one will be. In fact, I was struck by this one because there's a the woman is a central character, whereas all the ones I read, it was a male central character. 
I think it narrates a story that he's told before from the point of view of a man, this woman's husband, and it's now from the point of view of the woman, which is a very John Foss thing to do. He sort of retells stories yeah. either at different points in the same person's life or from different points of view. He's, he's very into kind of reworking the same material. I suppose, you know, maybe a bit a la Patrick Modiano, for example, where it's similar scenes just through slightly different lenses. It's called Alice at the Fire, isn't it, the new yes, one? that's right. Just a pause to say, goodness me, what a year for Fitzcarraldo. It's published yes. by Fitzcarraldo, yeah. who also published Annie Erno, and I think the winners of the Goldsmith Prize. And Thea Lenarduzzi, let's not forget. And Thea Lenarduzzi, I mean... And Olga Tokarczuk, another Nobel Prize winner. And actually, John Foss, it would not be surprising if he won the Nobel in the next two, three, four, five years. And he's often talked about No, not at all. Yeah. So I, I suspect we will all be hearing a lot more about him. Well, that is what I'm going to try to correct my ignorance of John Foss. And also going with a recommendation by Paul Muldoon, a book that I really wish I had time to read, but haven't yet. Catherine Rundle's Super Infinite, The Transformations of John Donne, because, well, I love Donne, which is, is uh, you know, I also, I, I've got a kind of proper fondness and gratitude for him because he sort of, well, he kind of upped my score in the old finals, you know, 30 years ago. <laughs> he was my best paper. That was my best paper. That one, it's my specialist subject. So. Very good. Well, we'll Chris, you want it later. Specialist yeah, well, don't subject. go that far. Well done. <laughs> no, all right. I've been meaning to read that one as well. I feel like everyone's read it and I haven't read it. I feel, you know. Any consolation, yeah. I haven't read it. Although I, I think Catherine okay. Bundle's brilliant. And I've actually read a couple of her children's books. Yes, yeah, so have I. Yes, so have I. Two or three. Yeah. Oh, there you go. We've, 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 He's got a reading age of 12. Debbie, do you know especially why we've done this? Because back in the days of the Costa Prize, we used yes. to, we, we used to yes. natter on about the Costa Prize on the yes. radio, didn't we? And we she did. was so often in the in the children, in the running for the children's prize. And I'm sure this exactly. must be why I've read her. Exactly. You know, I think, yeah, there was one that was set in the Amazon or in South America. Yes. Yeah, yes. We, definitely, we definitely talked about that one, didn't we, Alex? And she's, she's a fascinating character. Look, we've sparked into life while talking about children's books <laughs> in the Amazon. <laughs> But as well as being a medievalist and a children's author, she's also, Catherine Rundell, she also does night walking across the spires of Oxford. I think she wrote a book about that as well. But yeah, Rooftopping, I believe it's called. Yeah. Well, she's got a book called Rooftoppers as well. I think, I think she's like a climber. She's a climber, so she climbs, climbs oh, God, up through the building. Yes, she does. She doesn't exist. She's one of she's these She's like a superwoman. She yeah. does. I've seen yeah. her give a talk. She, she gave an absolutely brilliant lecture on the climbing, on the rooftopping. And is this kind of, she goes up with sort of, you know, ropes, et cetera. And is this also kind of not allowed? Is it, a, is it trespassing as well? I think it's a bit naughty, but, you know, you know, I'm sure it's done safely. I think it's fine. Wow, that's, that is amazing. And, and thank you for, for bringing us so much more knowledge about Catherine Rondell, who is the kind of superwoman, clearly. Right, we are nearly out of time, uh, lads, and I'm going to ask you for your recommendations for what people should read this Christmas. We've talked a bit before when I've come on the podcast about Claire Keegan, whose wonderful novel, Small Things Like These, was shortlisted for the Booker this year. And I, on the back of that, was sent to another Claire Keegan novel recently called Foster, which was reviewed, which is utterly brilliant as well. I read that a couple of weeks ago. It is so beautiful. And it's a kind of really an extended short story in a way. Yeah, isn't a bit it? like small things like these. She writes these very, yeah. very short. I mean, they're not even short novels. They're short novellas. 
I think I talked about this before as well. When Damon Galgut reviewed small things like these, he he said in his piece that her technique is to write a sentence over and over and over and over and over again until it's perfect, and then move on, and never revise after that. So, and you really get that sense because it is everything's so perfectly weighted. But fosters this, and all about as she says. I I interviewed her over the summer taking things away that's what she does she takes things away yes that completely makes sense it's all so pared down and yet it does so much it's extraordinary foster this story of this young girl who's sort of in the mid 80s in rural Ireland who's taken in by this slightly wealthier family they're not particularly wealthy but they're wealthier than this this girl's very poor family over the summer at a period when this girl's mother's had another baby and it's about the relationship she develops with this foster couple and then she has to return home and she doesn't really want to. And it's very, very beautiful and very moving. But they're also, they're great Christmas presents because they're very, not they're not just brilliant. They're very short. And, you know, it's not that I always want to recommend very short books just for the sake of it. But sometimes giving people books as gifts can be a little bit of a poison chalice. You know, you give someone an 800 page tome and say, I loved this. And they sort of feel duty bound to read it. But <laughs> I think short books make good presents. And these are... <laughs> Brilliant. That is that's a brilliant. So I'm um, surely we can get that going as the new kind of keep calm and carry on. Yes. <laughs> Retire on the proceeds of the merch. Surely, Toby. <laughs> Lucy, what about you? Can I just cheat and not do the thing that you want me to do? I'm going to. I want to recommend yeah, you can something do what else you want. That, that, that I haven't read. I've got Richard no power Davenport. over you, as we know. <laughs> I'm just going to do it then. Richard Davenport Hines recommends Ed Young's An Immense World which he yes, says yes. it just sounds absolutely wonderful and I've been sort of hearing about it all year and meaning to read it he says it, it's an account of the astounding variety of perceptions of mammals birds reptiles insects and fish their copious innate powers and it left him awed and stunned so I actually want to read that so I'm encouraging everyone to read that even though I haven't it sounds wonderful I read his earlier book which was called something like The Infinite Multitudes, which was fascinating as well. And his journalism is fantastic, isn't it? I mean, he is an amazing writer. And it's one of those rare things where you kind of feel like a kid again. You kind of think, coo, wow. You know, I didn't know fish could do that or bats or whatever it is. It sort of brings a, a sense of wonder, which is rare enough occurrence that I think it's worth chasing. And you might actually feel like you're learning something, which is what we always like in a book, isn't it? Yes. No, can I say it's not rare that I learn things. I'm always learning things. I know nothing. What about you, Alex? <laughs> what, are, what are you recommending? Do you know what? I'm absolutely surrounded by crows where I live or rooks, as Max Porter once said to me. If there's a lot of them, they're rooks. And so I actually ordered a copy of Esther Wilson's Corvus, which is like years old. But I thought, I actually don't know anything about these birds. But that's a by the by. I am going to recommend a book that I've just read and that has only just come out. I don't know if either of you have started it or are going to read it. Jonathan Coe's Bourneville, which I thought was just magnificent. I absolutely loved it. There we are. There you have it. Bourneville. Bourneville is the name of the new novel. We should say yes, Bourneville. Yes, you're not just saying words of chocolate. The the chocolate's involved, isn't it? Chocolate's very much involved. Well, that's a brilliant thing to read at Christmas. We should probably wrap it up, shouldn't we? We've told people enough about what they should read now. They've got they're, everyone's staggering under teetering piles of books. They really are. And they've not even got to the quality street yet. What a range of stuff to enjoy. Thank you to all the contributors to this year's Books of the Year. Thank you so much for being our guide through them, Toby. And obviously it is now heads down for next year's titles. Can't wait. You must be very busy. Oh, I am. Oh, yes. 
<laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Toby Lishtig and Russell Williams. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week, but for now from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.